Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our special Sunday mailbag edition. Our regular, very, very regular, but still very, very special mailbag. When I say our, I mean mine. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the Doctor of Style, Dr. Anir Mahanti. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Good to be back again. It's good to be back again, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. Now, well, again, because we recorded this just after the last one, but uh, for our listeners, at least two days have passed, so hopefully they're not sick of us yet. We're certainly not sick of recording it, mate, and we've got a full mailbag, as I mentioned earlier in the week. So without any further ado, without any more tangents, let's get on with it. Mate, the first one comes from Sam. Now, I see I like Sam, and I want to answer his question. I feel like he's trying to take our jobs, though, mate. So I, I, I'm a bit conflicted on this one. But, but because I, I'm committed, we're committed to doing the right thing by our listeners, I will ask it as, as sent. So says, I've got a question for the pod in regards to careers in finance. What are the best way, what is the best way or ways for someone in a different profession to make the pivot? Is an MBA worthwhile? Should I do a graduate diploma in financial planning? Some thoughts or observations would be appreciated. I'm currently looking at making the transition and I'm tossing up study options, etc. All right, Doc. Sam's going to come for our jobs. What's the best way to do it, do you reckon? Uh, don't come for our jobs. <laughs> Someone else's job. <laughs> Go after somebody else's job. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, okay. So I don't want to talk down uh, anything. I think any study option, like if it's a good MBA, is worthwhile, a good financial diploma, a planning course. Is, like any good course teaches you something uh, useful. But whether or not it's directly related to what you want to do depends, right? So if you want to, right. for example, be an investor, I'm not 100% sure uh, if like a MBA teaches that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, there's that. So it depends. Uh, I think there's no substitution for practical knowledge or knowledge mm-hmm. that one can build. Um, if you want to be an investor, the best way to learn is to invest and to, to just try and acquire as much knowledge as you can. These days, I mean, online you can learn everything from, you know, whether you go to Coursera or Udemy or just search, you can find a lot of information. So I think that's um, what I would say that you can learn you can dip your toes into different areas and and learn about that and i think you know it can be done while you're working in your current job because you know you could spend the weekend or spend mm. some time in the evening um learning about what, what you're passionate about or learning about something new and, and something new is always good for your mind so that that's i think what i would suggest um captain you have other ideas Mate, I always I struggle to answer this question for a couple of reasons. The first is that you're a computer scientist, and I was I worked in the FMCG industry, and we both found ourselves working for the Motley Fool. Um, and the reason I find it difficult to tell people what to do is because we're not very we're not very representative of of the finance industry more broadly. And so, what got us here, frankly, uh, I don't know whether you or I would have been hired by an alternative investment firm at, at the start of our investing careers the same way that we were here. Now, some would have, absolutely. There are some firms out there who would absolutely look for other skills and experience and would be prepared to take a, a punt on some of this stuff. Um, so kind of the answer to Sam's question in my mind, mate, is it kind of depends on what sort of career and what sort of business and what you're looking to do. He mentions financial planning. That's a whole different sphere to us, which is kind of more financial advice, um, which is different in the sense that we give, we, you know, we're stock pickers and where we provide general financial advice a financial planner generally is giving personal financial advice with a whole different set of skill sets rarely 
actually picking their own stocks, for example. So it really, really depends on what sort of job you want and it really depends on where you want a job. If you want a job with any of the 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 quotes traditional finance firms, you're going to need some sort of qualification in almost all of those circumstances. Um, the Graduate Diploma in Applied Finance and Investing is run by Fincia. Uh, I think Kaplan do it for them these days. Fincia is the Financial Services Industry Association. Um, it's kind of the prerequisite, right? I, I, I've done some of those units. I haven't done the full Graduate Diploma because uh, I didn't need to with the full. Um, but that that's the generally accepted way into the industry for most people. Um, or a graduate diploma in financial planning, if you want to be a financial planner, as I said, that kind of does depend. And MBA, I reckon, is actually a great thing to, to the coursework anyway. Whether you need the qualification, again, depends on what sort of employer you know you want to you want to work for and whether they want the piece of paper or the or the proven ability to apply yourself. Um, but general kind of business. A general business course is super useful. Uh, that was my background. So I did, I did commerce. I majored in management uh, as, a, as an undergrad. I haven't done an MBA, but I did a lot of those subjects. And then the professional experience on top of that kind of got me to where I knew enough. Uh, and then, as you say, Doc, you know, just learning to be an investor. The Motley Fool, old school. You know, I've been a member of the Motley Fool community in the US since 98, if you can believe that. Um, come up to, well, yeah, I won't, I won't talk about what proportion of my life that is, but let's just say it's uh, meaningful. Um, and uh, you know that combined with um, as you say doc just doing it studying it learning about it reading about it talking about it um, it's really really hard mate you know how, how to be a great investor is actually different to how to get a job in the finance industry right and I think that's that's where it gets really hard so Sam mate I apologize there are no easy answers uh, I probably would be inclined if you're changing industries to really consider one of those graduate diploma applied finance or financial planning depending on what you want to do specifically because it's going to give you the broad underpinnings and kind of make up any gaps you've got um but that being said I, I, a lot of the stuff they teach in that applied finance course we at the motley fool would largely say is not super useful because it's the old-fashioned traditional way of investing where you know a massive emphasis on things that can be taught right and can be formulaically d- defined so discounted cash flows and weighted average costs of capital and all that kind of stuff which have their place as concepts um, but won't necessarily maximize your chance of being a great investor. Anything else on that, buddy? Question from Peter, mate. Hi, Scott. As usual, your analogies hit the right spot, although I'm never surprised by those who seem to expect investing to be a straight, unwavering trajectory upwards. And on one downturn, castigate people like yourself and the motley fool for apparently not being clairvoyant. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate that. Some fools and their money, he says, are apparently easily parted. One question I do have, says Peter, is those who see the current upsurge in share markets as being based on a lot of liquidity with nowhere to go. I counted that ETFs might not be your best friend at the moment, as maybe it's even more important that you pay careful attention to which companies you invest in in a bull market, i.e. target your investing carefully. What are the main criteria you use to evaluate whether a company's share price is excessively out of kilter with growth projections? He says in brackets, hopefully early enough to do something about it. And are we in danger of seeing this more now? Regards, Peter, and Peter's from New Zealand. Mate, um, so let's let's go with his observation, then his question. So he talks about the fact that He's saying there's a lot of, you know, markets are, are surging in part in his view because there's a lot of liquidity with nowhere to go. We talked about that on Friday, by the way, with some capital raisings being done by Australian companies in the past and American tech companies in the present. Uh, maybe that's true. And if that's true, as he says, maybe ETFs aren't your best friend if markets are getting, uh, let's not let's not use any pejorative words, but, you know, getting getting expensive. Um, so does do you think that's true? 
And then to what extent do you or how do you look at uh, whether a company is overvalued? Which criteria do you choose to use? Yeah, like, so I mean, the, mar- the market on average is now more expensive than it was in February, March, and it's probably more expensive than it was uh, you know, a few years back, right? I mean, that's the benefit of hindsight. So with the benefit of hindsight, we know that at least on obvious metrics, it looks expensive. I think the only thing I'd adjust for is um, interest rate outlook, right? We've talked about this a few right. times. If the interest rate outlook has changed, is relatively zero, or it's close to zero, then it does warrant the multiples to go up. By how much is, again, it depends, but it does warrant the multiples to go up. So, so there's some of that. See, now, when I'm investing, see, see the, so the multiples are important when you're investing, in, you know, making like some value pick and you want to, you know, buy at a certain discount and then, you know, you want to be able to sell at a certain price and things like that. I don't try to invest that way. I, I you know, because I find that the that method to be very hard. Instead, what I am trying to look for is, you know, what I call secular growth ideas, stuff mm. that is sort of the future. That's how the future is going to look. I'm making a bet on the future and how the future is going to shape shape out, and then the future is going to be different from what it is now. The future is going to be brighter than what it is now, and if it's going to be many times brighter than it is, you know how it looks today in its nascent form, then um, then I'm fine. I I worry about valuation, but not a whole lot. Um, mm. You know, most of the time I'm worrying about valuation largely because you know in the short term it can be painful if you get the valuation wrong. Mm. So, but if you know, the market size is 10 times of what it is today and your share price today or the company's valuation does not reflect what it can be, you know, in a decade from now, it's okay. I mean, again, I, I'm not, you know, it's valuation is very hard, rough to do. But yeah, that's, that's so I'm just basically, if I'm going for the big winners, I really don't worry too much about valuation. It's probably the last concern that I have. Yeah. Um, Please for me. Now, can I can I finish that through though? Because I know at some points you have sold shares in companies that you had previously owned, and in some cases, I have to assume that was partly valuation, whether it was a combination of quality and valuation, or simply because the quality had declined, you weren't so comfortable with the price you were otherwise getting. Um, I won't I won't uh, mention names. You you feel free to do it or not do it as you as you deserve, Doc. But um, wh- when in those times have you sold companies, and how were there particular criteria to, um, to to pay this question that you use to decide when to sell was it overvaluation was it poor quality was it a combination of both just maybe give us that sense as well yeah so like the, you, know, the, you know I used to talk a lot about a company called First Internet Bank uh, you know Scott you'll remember this and I used yeah. to really like the company for what, what it was it was basically effectively like you know trying to be a neo bank an online bank mm. uh, you know a new age bank I think what happened there was though is that the thesis really didn't pan out the way I thought it would pan out. You know, I gave the company you know more than half a decade to execute, I think, before I actually gave up on it and saying like you know, it, it's after a while it just is. It seems like the thesis is just not executing. At which point, I mean, this is a thesis failure, not a valuation failure as as such. And, and I'd, I'd expect I'll have a fair bit of those happening. Um, so, so there was that. There have been other instances where I sold. I'll use another example. Um, you know, I, after owning, say, Starbucks shares for like you know, close to a decade, I sold them. That was more less about 
thesis execution and just more about, well, I needed some capital and, you know, the shares looked fairly valued. So I thought, okay, uh, you know, I can sell those and put that, put that capital to work somewhere else. And that was really that. I mean, uh, I think the shares have doubled from where I sold them. So, so there's that bit as well. Um, <laughs> oh, so mate, sellers regret, so, buyers regret. It's common, isn't it? Uh, it's, yeah. Uh, and I don't remember what I put it into. Uh, then I think my biggest, I, I think the biggest sell that I did, uh, again, I think this, again, most of my sales that I have sold after holding for many years have tended to be a mistake in, in, the, in the terms of selling. So I've sold my Netflix shares again after maybe probably holding for close to a decade. Uh, so the, part of that, I think sometimes what happens is if you hold shares for that long a time and stuff has worked out, then it, you know, it goes from being a small holding to a large holding. Yeah. And then the volatility of that large holding kind of gets to you and you sort of, you know, and, and the thesis I have there, and I can get concrete examples just to see like how I think. And again, I'm not saying anybody should be thinking the way I think, but it just gives you insights into at least one investor's way of thinking. So I sold on the back of Apple TV launching its own streaming service. And my take was like, look, Apple is doing it. Disney is doing it. Everybody else is doing it. There's gonna be too much competition. and. I think Netflix is going to have a hard time growing its subscriber base, and a largely net Netflix's valuation is tethered to its subscriber growth more than anything else. But guess what? Like you know, subscriber growth has actually not suffered for Netflix, and maybe the pandemic happened and it has helped. So maybe the thesis hasn't fully played out. Uh, but I think in 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 most cases, I think in stories like this, you probably want to see proof that it's not working out and not guess estimate that it's going to happen, right? So I, I, without seeing the data point that, you know, it's having a hard time adding uh, subscribers, the subscribers are not sticking around. Like, I mean, I have been a subscriber. I've been a subscriber. I shouldn't even probably say this. I've been a subscriber before, you know, Netflix was available in Australia. So I was using like, you know, VPN to access. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's uh, nice. Yeah. So, so Netflix, but you know, like I haven't, uh, you know, unsubscribed from Netflix, even though, you know, it's just, you know, some of these things are just what you do and you have, and other people are going to use it. And then other people in other countries are going to use it. Um, you know, they have these new mobile plans. I think, I guess the long and short would be maybe use data to guide yourself and the data could come from multiple sources but it, it can't be just like you know I think my thesis was flawed saying that okay there's too much competition but there's always competition but the question really is that uh, Disney Plus is coming where is it going to steal its share from it's going to steal share from Netflix or is it going to steal its share from um, you know cable TV right that's that's the sort of thinking that I think I, I think I got wrong there. So you know, I, I think for for secular growth, which is like a you know it's an abused term. I think you can be a lot more tolerant because you are you are basically playing into you know you where things are going, and then you start seeing things are going there, and there's really no reason to stop being there unless you start seeing the transition happen to some other place. I think this is so. I think that's the long and short of it for me, at least. 
I like that, mate. It's a good one. And, you know, and, and the other thing, I mean, you, you shouldn't give yourself too much of a hard time. No one's ever going to buy at the bottom or sell at the top, right? And I think it's always seller's remorse or buyer's remorse to look later and go, oh, I could have got cheaper or, oh, I could have sold it for more. Um, you know, we, we've, we've all had that experience. That That's just the reality. But I think, uh, there you go, Peter, to, to your point. Um, so, Doc, would you say it's fair to say if you felt like the, the, the growth you expect – no longer keeps up with the expectations built into the share price. Is that kind of a, a broader? If you look at say Netflix, you said, "Well, hang on, the share price, the shares are, are are priced for a level of growth. I simply don't think is likely to continue." Would that be the the, the strongest kind of heuristic you'd be using in that in that case? Well, but not really. Like, I mean, here's the, the problem with that is I think the market is always going to underestimate secular growth. Like, more often than not, the market is very poor at estimating forward growth rates for. Um, things that are changing, right? So the switch from like cable television to mm. over-the-top streaming has been going on for like a, over a decade plus now, right? And they're still not done because there's still a lot of cable television, right? Yeah. And and the market has been estimating slowdown of growth rate for a long time, right? So I mean, and that's not it. I I, I think the main thing in my mind is it, like there is a top in terms of say how many subscribers you can have. How close are you there, right? So if Netflix has 200 million subscribers and the world has got 9 billion people, maybe it's got 4 billion homes. Well, Netflix could in theory, and, and Facebook has got a billion pe- people on it. Netflix could in theory have a billion people, right? So if it could have a billion people, that opens a whole sort of different set of doors, right? Because not just you could stream to them, you could do other things to with those people, right? You've got a billion Customers, potential customers. So I think that's the way to think about it. The 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 I think the main issue there is just as things become obvious, there's more competition, and that can actually result in your I guess what you're alluding to rate of growth decreasing, or you faltering, or you making mistake missteps. I think those can be good considerations at that point. Like you would need right, okay. Netflix to make a mistake or Netflix to miss something mm-hmm. um, and so on. And you know, like you just use Disney Plus as an example, right? I I horribly underestimated how powerful Disney Plus could be, right? And, and I was off by like factors, so like, you know, <laughs> orders of magnitude in terms of how right. quickly it could grow. So again, it's very difficult to predict these things. So I think, you know, you let the data do the talking and I think at the sign of where the data, and, and again, there too, you want, you actually probably need a few, mm-hmm. um, consecutive failures to really give up and, and you're going yeah, to lose like in the share and the share price is probably going to decline in that period but you know like you could not just use one blip as an example uh, i think it's important speaking of blips right like netflix really screwed up the they tried to demerge their physical dvd business from their video business i can't remember what it was called quick quickster 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 and when they did that the share price absolutely created now as you say that's an example of doing one thing wrong but selling at that point would have been an absolute disaster relative to what happened subsequently share price. Whereas you sold way later than that after making a fortune on those shares. So, you know, there, there is something about waiting for that. As I, I like to say, I, I try to be slow to, uh, slow to buy and even slower to sell for the same reasons. If you've bought quality, you don't want to be giving up on that quality as long as you've been right. If you think you if you just realize you're wrong, outright wrong, that's different. But if you know, if, you, if you've if you've done the work and a business has proven it's a quality business, selling too early 
is probably a bigger mistake than than you know than than selling um, too late. And, and to Doc's point, even if you do see the share price decline somewhat between then and now, I mean Netflix could fall by half, and Doc still would have made a fortune. It could probably fall by two thirds, I imagine, mate. You still be well truly ahead. So you know, such as the the growth power of these sort of stocks. Um, I can't add much more to that, Peter. Doc's style is a bit different to mine. Um, generally speaking, I think I would be more mindful of just simply what level of what size of growth is still remaining and what is potential. So if you think about a business like Netflix, which had, you know, the world was literally its oyster and plenty of other companies we've talked about before and since, including, by the way, some last Friday, not not two days ago, but the week before with our with our stock picks, the, the bigger the opportunity, the more you can, the more room you can give it for valuation. Doc, you kind of talked about that as well on Friday. Um, but the, 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 the lower the, the, the size of the total addressable market, maybe the more thoughtful you need to be. I've used the example before of, where quality for all of those, I, I, I you know, I, I still think Coca-Cola Amatil, which is almost taken off the market now, one of the best quality operations, including its brand, its distribution, its network, its economies of scale, like as a business, as a, as a functioning food business, you can't ask for a better business. I don't think there is maybe the Coca-Cola company itself, but in Australia, um, you know, it had all those great quality attributes. The problem was there's not enough growth left. Like it, it had literally done everything it was set out to do. Um, you know, there is no there is no single drink fridge in the country that doesn't have a Coke product in it. There is no convenience store, general store, supermarket. Um, you know, almost any takeaway except those that have to deal with Pepsi um, in the country that doesn't have Coke. Like it is it is truly one of the most impressive corporate operations in the country. The problem is once you once you've maxed that out. You, you, you know, there's not much growth left. And so I, I, I made a mistake. I'll press it on a mind. I've said before, buying Coke on the basis of, of all those quality attributes. I got the quality attributes absolutely right. I just didn't leave enough room for the growth that I thought was, or I didn't think well enough. <laughs> I got wrong. Um, there wasn't enough growth left to justify the then current price. I paid for a quality multiple, but without the growth, you simply can't justify those prices. So I think there's a there's a function there to my mind, and Doc, you may even disagree, but to my mind, the broader, the, the greater the growth left, the greater the quality, the less you can afford to pay attention to price. Um, when there's less growth left or when quality is less oppressive or attractive or obvious, uh, maybe price matters a little bit more. Is that is that would you agree with that, or would you still would you still take a different perspective? You know, I, I think I, I think I agree. The only thing I'll add to it is like in in circumstances like say, the Coca Cola Amatel business, right? I mean, excellent business. The couple of things that I'd be careful about is, as you, which you rightly alluded to, right? The basically valuation, right? You, you have to, you have to buy it at a cheap enough valuation to, mm. to be able to then uh, yeah, get a return exactly. on it, right? right which is, right, which right. is, which is probably the story with even things like the banks. I mean, you can make good money on the banks if you buy it at a good valuation. And then you potentially can sell it at a high valuation, right? Sure. You know, like the the classic buy low, sell high works yep. on on things like this um, because of again limited size and things like that. So I like that. Uh, that's a that's a good that's a really good point. But last one, last part of Peter's question is very quickly. He says. Uh, he talks about the fact you know what are main criteria used to evaluate whether a company's share price successively out of kilter. But he says at the end, and are we in danger of seeing this more now? So back to Peter's original point about the amount of money in the market, the, the cheap low interest rates, people chasing yield, chasing growth, chasing some sort of return. Are we in danger as, a, as an investing group, as a market of having more companies that are more divorced from reality when it comes to share prices and valuation? Uh, yeah, I think to some extent, yes. I mean, like cheap money has, as you know, as we talked about you know, on Friday, right? I mean, there are companies that don't, you know, at least in my mind, seem to not need the capital that are raising capital. <laughs> yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see what they're going to do with that capital. 
Um, so there is that beat that you know, and an excessiveness of that. The like it's hard to argue that mm. you know even the most highest quality business that's out there is not priced. You know, it's priced relatively. You know, like um, in a rich sense. Um, so so there's that. Yeah. So. So what do you do with that is 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 a, is a good question. I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, or what should you? What, yeah. Is, are we? Is he right to be a little bit more, at least selective and mindful of that? Yeah. So I think being selective is is very good. So like I mean the classic example I, I you know for many years, uh, you know Woolworths PE was higher than Apple's PE, which in my <laughs> mind makes absolute no sense. Like it's completely bonkers. Uh, I think now they're roughly equivalent. <laughs> so, uh, right? I mean, so I mean, so there's that bit. I think, like, in the even in this sort of environment, I think companies that have large growth potential. I think again, as you have said, you could you could be more lenient on valuation. Right. And if you are, like, I mean, right now, I would not pay a high va- high multiple for a business that doesn't have global growth opportunity okay. in my mind. Because any business that has a niche opportunity and is highly priced, I think is gonna have a hard time um, justifying its valuation, right? But at the same time, I think businesses which are global and uh, or have large opportunities and are priced priced, you know, relatively, relative to others, uh, more moderately, I think, are fine and should probably do fine. And then, you know, again, as if the, the multiples are around 40, that's roughly a 2.5% earnings yield. Uh, so one over 40. I mean, that's better than 0%, which is, well, I, I just read on the AFR that, you know, the government has again sold some negative bonds. So actually, effectively, <laughs> our interest rates right now, uh, people are saying, Australian government, please take, you know, we'll give you some money and guess what? <laughs> we'll pay you <laughs> to, to take our money. If that's the situation, yeah. uh, then a PE of 40 actually sounds pretty reasonable <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. In, in that context. So there's that context as well. What we don't know is what, where will the PE be in the future? Where will be the earnings be? If there's so much money, earnings should, you know, in theory, uh, expand as well. You know, stimulus helps mm-hmm. earnings. Um and yeah, so I mean, you know, how this all shakes out is, is hard to know. I like the mate. Well done. Um, no, no particular different views on that, with the exception that at some point I think rates will rise. Um, I think they'll rise. They'll rise slowly, uh, but at some point, whatever, whatever uh, expansion to take account lower rates should reverse if all things are equal. And they, yeah, again, the market's not always efficient and not always completely efficient. But at some future point, if there is a premium in share prices for for zero rates when they're less than when they're more than zero sorry at some future point you should assume that premium comes down now i'm not saying you should avoid shares as a result and back to your point talk about secular growth but um I, I would just be a little bit careful of paying high multiples for low growth businesses and we talked about the banks on friday as well uh, on the basis yeah if, if rates are at zero forever then that's fine if they're not and if, they don't have to go up massively right but just for every tick up rates go uh, your your likely return from a slow growth business, low growth business goes down. And so just be, just be mindful of that as well. All right, let's go to a question from Benjamin. He says, G'day, Scott. Big fan of the podcast. Appreciate the straight talk in simple English. Ben, I'm a simple man. and uh, Well, Doc's much smarter than me, but I'm a simple man, so I try and keep it simple. Uh, Benjamin says, I've got a, just quickly firing a thought in regards to a question from David on the Christmas mailbag. We're a couple of weeks late on this one, mate, regarding calculating individual holdings held in ETFs. 
And we had a couple of people uh, contacting this one. He says, Morningstar Premium has an X-ray feature. In air quotes, I assume that's what they call it, that breaks holdings down into a positional size, including their components made up from ETFs as well as individual stocks. He said they currently offer a free 30-day free trial, which I found useful to see where my positions lay and where the overlap was. Hope you had a good Christmas. The podcast definitely helped the time pass. So there you go. We, people asked about that, Doc, about you know what how to, how to think about ETFs with overlapping positions. Apparently, Morningstar has a solution, and you can go and check that out with a 30-day free trial. They're a competitor of ours, but uh, happy to pass all that information for the benefit of our listeners. I don't know if you got on that before I move on. No, 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 nothing, nothing. I mean, try it out. There you go. Let's go to Mark then. Mark says, one for the mailbag, if you ever decide to come back to work. We did, Mark, we did. Here in France, he says, it's six degrees and raining. He said, but the croissants are still good with Vegemite. The 60-40 investment rule says that they have to have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds or stable classes of assets. I'm thinking, he says, real estate qualifies as stable. I have an investment property ratio with my share and super portfolio of 60 to 40 after the CGT. That's the wrong way around. In other words, he's got 60% property, 40% shares. As I'm retired, if I hold the property till I die, I won't ever get the use of its value, only the rent. Is it time, he asks, to cash in the property and balance to the 60-40 rule and buy a small apartment as the stable investment? (laughs) As I hate the tenant and maintenance stuff of a long-range investment, what other types of assets could make up that 40%? He finished off saying merci, and in brackets, not mercy, it's pronounced merci. So assuming, Mark, I've managed to pronounce your (laughs) writing correctly, I've either completely botched it again or got it right. So I'm going to go with merci. Uh, Mark. So there you go, Doc. A big question. Um, Mark, I, I have no, I have no, absolutely no um, compassion for your six degrees because you're having French croissants and I assume breadsticks and cheese and ham and all that sort of delightful stuff. So uh, I may, I, you, you get no sympathy from me whatsoever. But we should answer his question. 60-40 investment rule. Firstly, mate, are you a fan? And secondly, is property does property kind of qualify in your mind in that 40%? Oh, I'm not really a fan of 60 40 you know, like, I mean, uh, why, I mean, why would you want to have bonds that are paying like 0%, like, I mean, or negative, doesn't make sense in the current, or like, you know, you could buy a corporate bond that's like yielding 3%. That just seems like, like very little return to get. And I'm just, I'm happy to tolerate the volatility uh, to get higher returns. So. I'm not a big fan. Actually, I'm not a fan at all of the 60-40 rule to start off with. But yeah, if somebody wants cash, then, you know, rental property it seems like a decent, uh, you know, cash flow machine. If it's in the right place, then it can be rented. If it is rented and it'll, you know, pay nice little income along the way. Assume, I mean, again, if it is leveraged, then you have to pay off the debt or the interest of the debt, uh, you know, principal interest with it. So there's that mm-hmm. component. But yeah, like, I mean, I don't have anything against property in that sense and you know um, is the yield on a property any better than the yield on a corporate bond I don't know like I mean you have to do the maths you could get a 3% yield on a corporate bond or do you want a 3% yield on on the property I guess again if it's on the super then it, it potentially can't be significantly leveraged the amount of leverage you can have uh, as far as I understand is, is less so there's that bit, you know, you, you want to have to compute, compute the yields that you're getting and compare that with other potential assets that you can, um, 
you can get uh, the similar sort of yield, I guess. That that would be, you know, my answer. But it's probably not very satisfactory. I, I like the answer, mate. I think... um So, look, we've, we've got people even at The Fool who would actually completely agree with the 60-40 rule. I... I I won't, I won't put these words in his mouth, but Robert Brokamp, who's one of our US fools, and he's not licensed under the Australian um, licensing regime, so I need to be careful about what words I put into his mouth or how much uh, I specifically state from his his uh, his own views. But effectively, the view that some people hold, including him, is that you know you want to have a portion of bonds because they're less volatile, they're more certain, you can get an income from them, you can sell them at effectively face value, um, as long as they're reasonable bonds and not rubbish junk bonds. Um, and so they, you know, as a, as a proportion of a, of a retirement, in retirement portfolio in particular, they provide a nice source of cash and readily accessible capital without having to worry too much about the, the prices moving around all that much. So I, I think that that's kind of traditional financial advice. That being said, Doc, I actually agree completely with you. I think, it, but it does depend on the individual person, right? And I think this is where financial advice is hard because we're, we're, giving, we're giving general advice now to thousands of people who listen to this podcast and saying, we think there's a better way to do it. But you have to be of a interest, mindset, capability, and frankly, emotional tolerance to do it our way or some other way, depending on what's right for you. So for some people, 60-40 is great and it makes them, they can sleep at night. They know what their income is going to be. There's a whole lot of stuff about it. I mean, people buy annuities for the same reason, right? And I don't think you, I think most people should. I think there are much better opportunities out there. But if, if you're someone who just like, you know what, dude, I just can't do shares. I need to buy an annuity so I can sleep at night. I can retire in comfort. I don't want the stress and hassle. I'm like, you know what, that's fine. It's a suboptimal financial outcome but it's a perfectly fine lifestyle outcome for someone who just otherwise can't you know sleep at night or manage their manage their their stress levels. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna t- I'm gonna sit on the fence a little bit. I think to maximise your returns, I think a 60/40 is way too conservative um, and way too unnecessary if you manage the dividends. I've said before, it's not an ad, but we have a service called Motley Fool Everlasting Income where we basically use shares to provide income in a way that right through the COVID crisis, by the way, but and before and after has been a great way of getting generating income from an investment portfolio without having to give up um, either the tax benefits of frank dividends or the opportunity for some moderate capital growth. And so there's there's many, many ways of skinning the cat. 60-40 is a nice, easy way. It's kind of a bit of a mail-it-in solution. Um, so I'm, I'm not a fan of it if you have the stomach to improve your returns, but I'm also not going to criticize anyone who does it because they just feel like they need to and should for their own purposes. Um, when it comes to just property make it up, I think it probably does, quite honestly. I'd... I wouldn't want one property for all the reasons that that Mark highlights um, and dealing with the tenant maintenance, all that kind of stuff. It can be a drain pretty quickly. I mean, we all know that, you know, a big cost, whatever that cost is, whether it's um, and a roof falls off or, you know, you're in a strata unit where the strata has to replace, you know, redo a building or fix an elevator or something and all of a sudden you're up for a 10 grand strata bill. Those things, you don't know, never get those with shares, right? So, I'm not a huge fan of property generally as an investment. I don't have one myself. I have in the past uh, with a mate. We held an investment property for, I don't know, five years, about a decade and a half ago. So I've been there, done that. Um, I'm not a huge fan. But would it be a, would it be an okay portion for the, for a 60-40? Probably. Uh, I, did, I just think, Mark, to your, to your own point, mate, about the maintenance and, and hassle, I probably just wouldn't. I don't, I don't think it's probably worth it. And it's a single asset, right? Um, we wouldn't have – no, the doctor or I would recommend 40% in a single stock. And if you've got 40% of your portfolio on a single property, you're arguably taking a bit more risk than, than otherwise might be the case. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it's fine. It, it's, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't criticize you if you're replacing bonds with, with property. Again, we should say we're not telling you, Mark, what you should do. We can't give personal advice. But in general, I wouldn't have a problem with someone saying an investment property rather than bonds as a, as a general approach. 
but I probably wouldn't do it that way myself. I'd probably, um, I, I wouldn't have 60-40 and I'd probably, I don't know, I don't know what else I'd replace the 40% with, Doc, really, honestly. I, I, I'm just not that way geared, not that way minded, so I probably, I probably wouldn't do it at all. Um, I, I, yeah, I really, I, I don't know, man. I, I can't imagine what I would use as a safe, safe, stable kind of income producing 40%. So I guess I would go with property in the end. You? Oh, it's a good one. Like, I mean, I don't, like, I mean, you know, like to your point, I think, you know, I could see someone, I could totally see someone having bonds that are yielding 3% or annuities mm-hmm. that are guaranteed to give you some of the Property is not, I, I don't think like, you know, I say, you know, I talk negatively about property. Property is not bad. As long as, you know, you're willing to look past all the hassles that, you know, you need an agent to manage your property or you have to do the work yourself. You know, if it's a strata property, you have to be paying the strata, be willing to foot extra bills and things like that. You know, and maybe property, property is, is, is okay as, as long as it's yielding enough. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good view on it yet. Sorry, Mark, can't help you, mate, but, uh, <laughs> but a, reason, a good question and a reason one. I thought it's what they would be at least 60 40 the other way around, as, as you say. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. One from Matt, mate. Um, <laughs> Matt, Matt, I don't know if Matt's trying to read my mind or, uh, or maybe trying to suck me in, I'm not sure, but he starts with saying, right this second, you're asking yourself, why did I click this message? Now he knows I've seen it and we're pretty salty if I don't respond. These introductions <laughs> aside, I'm Matt, by the way. I'm a Melbourne-based investor, slowly building and mainly focused on small cap opportunities via the ASX. I'm not asking for pixel tips, but just some advice. He says, before I ask this question, I feel like I already know the answer. I'm going to say, if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time and you already know the answer, you probably genuinely, truly already know the answer. But let, let's, let's proceed just in case. Matt says, say I have a small holding, sub 2,000 bucks, in a company I intend to hold long term. The company, despite recovering from its March lows, is currently trending downwards. Would it be advantageous for me to sell for the short term, attempt to catch a falling knife and rebuy at a lower price? That way I gain more shares in the meantime. Or considering the size of the trade, would I be better off avoiding the capital gains tax event and just hold through the storm? Any insights would be appreciated. And hey, if you if you want, I guess it doesn't have to be a one-time deal. I'd be happy to pick your brain whenever it suits. Matt must be in marketing, I reckon. He finished off by saying, I've intentionally left this pretty vague. Don't want the legal eagles to swoop in. Hashtag Motley Fool Money Podcast. All right, that's a that's a good lot of questions. And Matt, you've certainly uh, you've certainly read the room, mate. Nice work. Doc, small company, declining. Is it better to sell now and then buy back when the shares are cheaper or should he hang on for the ride? Well, he just talked about declining share price, right? But that doesn't tell me anything about the business. I mean, if the business is doing all right and is, you know, executing as he thought it would, uh, then, I mean, then it's just this volatility that's happening, right? And it's very hard to know um, why some stock share is like, you know, declining today and increasing tomorrow because... You know, small com- companies have, you know, typically have low liquidity. Stuff stuff happens and things move. So, so that's. I think I would I would say that look at the business and see whether the business is is actually uh, diminishing uh, mm. or is growing, and if it's and is it whether or not it's off thesis or not. Mm. I think the bigger point is that there's there's some amount of guessing here, right? You you're making the guess that because it's declining, it'll continue to decline. 
if it continues to decline, then I can somehow pick the bottom or pick a much lower price and buy. I mean, what if you sell and then it goes up like doubles, right? I mean, those things do happen in the small cap land. Um, so I don't know, like, I mean, if you like the company, I would just hold it and not worry too much about, um, you know, the share price movements and things like that. And if I have some cash and if I like the business, I might consider buying some uh, if an opportunity arises. But yeah, I would not try to guess the price movement direction on the short term. Those are almost impossible to predict. I like that, mate. I'm uh, I'm going to say, Matt, you know exactly what I'm about to say next. I'm going to say it anyway, for your sake and for the sake of somebody else. Um, Doc's done a wonderful job of already highlighting the fact that you should be paying attention to the business, not the share price. If you like the business, if you think it's long-term is attractive, then you know the answer. Should you try and get some shares cheaper? Well, here's the thing, mate. If you know that shares are going to keep declining, then fantastic. I'd also like to know next week's lotto numbers and the winner on round week on Saturday, if you don't mind. Um, I, of course, I'm, I'm jesting. We can't know how long the share price will decline. Here's the problem too. People say, I'll, 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 um, I'll sell now. I'll wait for the decline. Then when it gets to the bottom, I'll buy some shares. Now, what normally happens in that case is people say, I'll sell now. So they do. And they wait for the price. It goes down 5%. And they go, oh, uh, they buy back then and negate the the, the, the upside because you paid brokerage twice, you probably paid tax. Or you wait till it falls 15%, then 20%, you go, oh, maybe I should buy now. And then it goes up 5%. You go, oh, I missed the bottom. I'll wait till it falls again. And then it goes up another 5%. Then it doubles and it doubles again. And you've missed the entire gain because you were too busy trying to pick the right entry and exit points. It is really, 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 really difficult to do. There are a few people who maybe possibly can do this well, um, there are many, many fewer, by the way, than like to claim it. So be mindful of that. Day trading or, or trying to trade charts and stuff is really stupidly hard. So honestly, I just don't, I don't think it's likely that you or I can do this well. And so I wouldn't try to do it. I'd, as Doc says, focus on the long term and say, this company's worth X today. I think it's going to be worth some multiple of X tomorrow or not tomorrow, but literally, you know, five, 10 years time. That's the only thing you need to know. Um, trying to get too clever on the buying, selling, buying, selling. The chance that you miss an opportunity and the shares then rally after you've missed the, the chance to buy back in is just not worth it. it just uh, there's there's a there's an old saying like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. You know, you make a couple of pennies, couple of pennies, couple of pennies, and the steamroller gets you. It really wasn't worth the risk you're taking. I would be looking at the bigger picture, as Doc says, rather than the uh, the, the short term. And I think you know that, Matt. Unfortunately, but uh, mate, thanks for the question. It's a it's a really really good one. Doc, while we're, while we're talking mailbag, I haven't for a while shared our socials and we do love hearing from our listeners on those respective socials or in your case, the social singular, unless you haven't signed up for um, for Insta in the in the holiday break, have you? Absolutely not. You have, you, have you joined TikTok? No. Okay. Still the social then singular. If you want to follow Doc, the only place, Doc is exclusive on Twitter. You can follow him at Anirban Mahanti. Do that. He's got some great stuff to tweet. You'll learn a lot uh, and you get a chance to interact with him there as well. Now, I'm also on the Twitters at TMF Scott P is my handle. And the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. Hit us up on the Twitter, send us a message, direct message, tag us, include us, ask us questions, respond to our posts. Uh, it's a fun way to interact with you and to, to all learn a bit of stuff together. So I'm I'm a big fan of Twitter, Doc. It's a it's a sewer sometimes, but I have absolutely I'm I'm a I'm net net. Uh, I've I've I'm a better investor and a better person for being on Twitter. When it comes to the other socials, you can't get Doc, but you can still get me and the Motley Fool. So on Instagram. Doc will be there by the end of the year, I'm sure. You can go to at TMF Scott P and at The Motley Fool AU, the same as our Twitter handles. And if you're on Facebook, 
The Motley Fool Australia is our corporate page or Scott Phillips Money is where I post occasionally um, some of our longer form stuff that we post, occasionally pictures, but not many of them. It's very hard to do pictures, Doc. I, I'm on Instagram, but I don't post very often because uh, you know, if you're a, if you're an Instagram model or a, a fitness guru or a photographer, Instagram's great. When you're an investor, there's only photos, only so many photos of spreadsheets you can take, mate, before people start to switch off. So I'm not as prolific on on Instagram as I might be for um, well, very good reasons. I'm, I'm it's not investing content isn't great on pictures, is it really? Um, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right, let's get back to questions. I've got one from Michael, mate. He says, "Hey, Scott and Doc." Absolutely loving the pod and you guys. Thank you, Michael. Very kind. I can't thank you enough for all your invaluable insight. He says in brackets, as I'm only 25 years old, Michael, we hate you with a passion. I've got another question, if I may. He says, what are your thoughts on the recent IPO, Nuix, N-U-I-X? There was so much hype around this IPO on the ASX. I've done some research and I'm considering buying shares, but I first would like to know your thoughts on the company that was dubbed the next Australian tech unicorn by the AFR. Those are some compelling words, Doc. Also, can I have your thoughts, please, on buying new IPOs in general? Thanks very much and happy new year. Michael, hashtag full on. Doc, Nuix, what can you tell us? Mm. Um, I can say that they should join our service. (laughs) (laughs) And what service is that, mate? Us extreme opportunities. If you joined, if you were, or if you, if he is an extreme opportunities member, then he would have heard our thoughts on, or read our thoughts on Nuix. I hope you haven't um, missed out, Michael. I hope you've joined. Um, yeah, but I just say I think I I will be kind to say that I I echo his thoughts. I think it's an interesting, very interesting business. Um, it's a uni- well, the unicorn word is used for like a billion dollar plus valuation, so it has a higher valuation than that. So it's, uh, I mean, it sounds all fancy that this is Australia's next unicorn world, but any company that has, like any tech company that has a billion dollar plus valuation is a unicorn, and, and it has listed, in, it's almost about three billion, I think. So it already is a unicorn. It's three unicorns. It's, it's like, you know, three unicorns. Is, <laughs> so so, so I would, that's neither here nor there. It's a very interesting business, I think. It's a superbly global business, and you know uh, what I think is very interesting is when you can say that this business was used uh, in the Panama Papers scandal, and this business was used to to read through the Banking Commission uh, documents. I think that's that's you know that's pretty interesting, Um, and you know this is a business that is that's a nice use case. It's used. Those are very interesting use cases, and it's used by ASIC and it's used by US SEC. Yeah. Nice. There you go. Now, Michael, because look, you're probably already a member. I'm sure you are, but other listeners may not be. And so if you are, but they're not, or even possibly if there's a chance you're not a member yet, you can rectify that right now. Pause the podcast and go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. You can join and hear Doc's thoughts on UX and Kevin's for a ridiculously inexpensive price a fantastic value service is motley full extreme opportunities and you can join as i said for a silly price by going to fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast you're only 25 mate put it put a couple of bucks on the line and not that much more than that just quietly and you might just get some great winners for the future no guarantees no promises we can't do that we won't do that and as always past performance is no guarantee but i reckon you might just be better off by joining motley full extreme opportunities at fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. 
All right, let's go to a question from Joe. He says, hi there, Scott. First name only, please. Joe, I'm, I got you covered, mate. Got you covered. Great work with the podcast. He says, I've appreciated the pre-recorded podcasts over the break. We were, there weren't many like us, I've got to say, Doc. There weren't many doing new podcasts over the Christmas, New Year break, but we delivered for our, for our listeners because we're just those sort of people. Um, now, I, this is one we've talked about before, I think on the podcast. We may not have. Certainly talked about it in the office uh, or the virtual office. He says, I've been looking into buying US shares directly, not via an ETF. And I came across something that seemed new on Comsec called a tracer, T-R-A-C-R. Or is it tracker? How do they pronounce it? Do you know? Tracer, there we go. Good. Where it seems to let you buy select US shares in Australian dollars on the ASX. This seems really appealing, but I feel like I might be missing something here. Joe, I like that thought, mate. I like the fact you're not just going to buy these things and uh, swallow it hook, line, and sinker. I like that everything can be viewed neatly in my Comsec portfolio, but I'm not sure of the downsides to this method versus using a more traditional US brokerage account. Is this something you and Doc can unpack on the podcast? He says, example stock code is TCXTSL on the ASX, which is Tesla. He says, can you also cover off things like liquidity and how the price is determined? Would be great to get your thoughts. Thanks, Joe. Now, Doc, you've looked into this a little bit. I've looked into this very briefly. You've done more work on it than I have. Um, what are the what has he described tracers properly, and what are the pros and cons? Yeah, so the best way to think about tracers is this is basically think about so take for example Apple. Um, you know, the sponsor in this case, I forgot who the sponsor is, but whoever is the sponsor, there's, there's somebody who's providing these traces here on mm-hmm. on, on GX, uh, it's, it's, it's through GX or ChiX, however you want to call it. Um, but anyways, you'll be able to trade it anyways on any platform here in, the, here in Australia. So they basically have effectively purchased, you know, ships um, and they have them in custody held, say, in the US. So they're actual real shares that correspond to the shares that are available to Australian investors. Right, that's important. So it's not a derivative product. There's no there's no promise at some point maybe no. make you whole. They are literally no. saying if you buy a tracer, we will hold in custody the I want to say custody, we don't mean police custody, we mean we're holding trust yeah. the uh, the equivalent number of, of shares of in this case, not the companies I won't mention in case you, you, you can't talk about it. Uh, our trading rules are, are pretty strict. Um, but yeah, so yeah, you, you want to buy I'll, I'll say Berkshire, mate, because I know you don't buy it, it makes it easy. Um, if you want to buy shares in Berkshire using a tracer, you buy the tracer, they buy the shares, and there's a one-to-one yeah. allocation, right? Yeah, and they've bought a bunch of shares that you know to provide some liquidity. They have got some market makers here in Australia who are going to make the market, uh, which basically means that you know often if there's a buyer, there needs to be a seller for those shares. The market maker acts as the seller in that case, right? Um, so, so it's all straightforward. There is, if you read through the tracer document, you can actually get the corresponding share transferred to you. Okay. Right? So there's that so to, as a further uh, element of proof that there is a share. So it's, there's no risk of, uh, you know, I should never say no, there's uh, hard to say 100% <laughs> anything. The exactly. risk that you don't have a corresponding share uh, is very, 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 very low in my opinion at least. Mm. Um, and so that's how it works. And they're trading it here in Australian dollars, and they're making basically they're making some money on the margins by uh, by you know the market makers are making some money you know the, the bid and ask basically, and and then how are they pricing it? Well, the price basically is either the 
hey, it's either defined by pre-market or post uh, after hours trading in the US or if the market is closed effectively by whatever seems to be the, um, the last price at that point plus the exchange rate really and plus some bid ask spread, right? So you're effectively getting the price that you would get. It's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Most of the shares that are available through the tracers mechanism are very highly liquid companies, in which case, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect substantial movements anyways in the price uh, while you're buying it, right? So but you're buying a few shares in order to move the market. So that's that. Um, downside, the only downside I can think of is if this product were to be deregistered, then what happens then, um, you know, you, can, you you are either going to be paid uh, the closing price, you can elect, I guess, you have to read the, you know, if the product closes, you, you can get the shares sold to you at the price, or you can elect to get the actual shares into your brokerage account. Uh, again, you have to read the fine print. So again, that seems like a relatively, the, the risk really is the product is discontinued, in my opinion, that's, that's probably the risk, in which case, you know, you'd have to wait for the transactions to complete. Probably not a big deal, uh, given there's a liquid, illiquid, uh, a liquid uh, mm-hmm. shares, very big, large companies. Um, yeah, because it was a product by RBS out, I want to say a decade ago, mate, but I might be aging myself either more or less here, where they had something similar, right? They, they had, I can't remember what they called them at the, at the time, but there was these RBS equivalents, which are kind of like the traces that were traded on the ASX. Um, they kind of shut up shop maybe two or three years after doing it because there simply wasn't enough interest. Yes, yes, yes. So I think from that experience, the ASX and ASIC has asked for certain provisions to be inserted <laughs> right. this time around to protect, good. Uh, to just protect, uh, you know, consumers who are or investors who are buying these assets. Mm. So I, I don't think there's any downside. It makes it simpler. Uh, I guess the downside is is not in the assets, but is rather in in the assets that are not available. Basically, if you're interested in investing in the US and you can only do it through your broker uh, and via tracers, then you're gonna be limited to however many tracers are available to you. And that may or may not be enough, right? For given individual circumstances. Like many of the the smaller companies that I would be interested in investing in are not gonna be available in tracers. They're they're gonna be available. Tracers basically are gonna make those companies available that typically are part of large indices. Right. Yeah, they're so, popular I enough mean, to gather enough money, right? Yes, and they're big enough, liquid enough, and things like that. And so that I think that is the, in my opinion, the downside is that you are investing in in U.S. equities without actually having the ability to invest in all potential U.S. equities, and, and that's probably the only downside. Again, nothing wrong with that. Uh, if that's how you're going to buy Apple shares, yeah. please do so. <laughs> so it's it's it's. It wouldn't be your preferred way of accessing the U.S. markets, but it's a far, far better solution than not doing it at all, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, if you just, with ETFs, you can't control your allocations. If you wanted to control your allocations and you wanted like a 4% position in Apple, uh, then how do you get that? The one way to get that is via tracers. So yeah, tracers, I mean, in my hierarchy, given that I'm an individual company-specific investor, I'd go, you know, tracers over ETFs. And yeah, then, yeah, right. of course, a, you know, a proper full-fledged brokerage account over that, over the traders. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Nice one. 
I'm not going to add anything to that. That's a great summary, mate. And you've done much more work on it than I have. I would just simply echo uh, the idea. I, I, look, I was uh, having had the RBS experience, uh, I was mindful of the ability of investors to get maybe caught by the same thing. Um, so there's always that. I, I, you know, it's one of those questions of, you know, do you do you take a, a, a not not a risk risk just you know you you, you had to have your RBS redeemed. I don't remember if they gave you the option of having US shares, and if you do, then of course that's either you got to sell them and have a capital gains tax event, or you're forced to accept US listed shares. You got to have a brokerage account. It, I mean, there are not there are, there are it's a non-zero complication problem that you don't have if you buy just ASX shares or if you go to the whole hog and buy US shares. But as you say, um, much better option. There's so many great companies out there to buy um, that in based in the US that frankly, I, I if you're not going to do a US brokerage account, at least consider Traces. And as you say, if not that, at least consider an ETF because they're all great ways of doing it. Mate, question from Chris. Uh, this is pretty good. Hi, Scott. Hope you're well. Though my two, uh, sorry, though my favourite podcast is by two Australian-based gents speaking about equity investing. Now I'm going to assume he means us. He doesn't say specifically. I'm going to make the leap, mate, because it makes me feel better to assume that he's talking about us. Two Australian-based gents speaking about equity investing. I reckon that's us. He says I also listen to a number of podcasts focused on the fixed income market. I don't do that, mate. I, I can't find that super exciting, but Chris does, and that's okay. A more recent common theme, he says, has been the potential risk of heightened levels of defaults in both high-yield bonds and leveraged loans in the near term. I was hoping to get your and Doc's take on this subject. Thanks, full-on Chris. So fixed income is one of those things. We talked about bonds before in that 60-40 portfolio, and they're kind of conservative and good cash flow and all that sort of stuff most of the time. <laughs> but we've seen government bonds defaulted. We've seen company bonds go into default and there's plenty of junk bonds that are called, well, you sometimes hear them called high yield bonds, which is Chris's term. And that's the more more uh, respectable term for them these days. They started off, of course, being called junk bonds because the yields were through the roof and the companies weren't very safe. Doc, your thoughts, not so much about bonds themselves, although feel free to, but Chris asks about the heightened levels of default in both the high yield bonds and leveraged loans in the near term. Is that something that we're thinking about for our investing, for the companies we invest in? Should our listeners be wary of companies with that sort of debt on their balance sheets or that they're investing in? Well, any company with too much debt, it's a relative too much is a relative term, but um, <laughs> and depends on the circumstances. Um, yeah, like, I mean, those are those are something, things to worry about. I, I don't really follow the fixed income market that well to actually have a good sense of mm. exactly what he's talking about. But like, I mean, as you've already said, high yield typically refers to junk bonds. These are companies which with uh, uh, not pristine balance sheets with some lots of question marks. And yeah, of course, they have a chance of default, which is why the market de- demands a higher rate of return um, in terms of yields from them. So yeah, I'd be cautious. Is this something that I'm worried about? Not right now. Nice, I like it. I yeah, look, I'm kind of the same. I there's a there's a group of investors who I occasionally call the doom and gloomers, and I don't mean that. Well, I guess I do mean it pejoratively, I suppose, at some level. I, I'm trying to make a point. Um, there's a group of people who, when the economy is terrible, tell you the economy is terrible, and when the economy is going well, they say, "Oh, it's going too well. It's going to." You know, there's more. There's more bad news coming. They're kind of never happy except when the crash is actually there. And they, see, I told you. 
and the rest of the time they're always predicting the next crash right it's it's one of those things where for you know 95% of the time they tell you a crash is coming uh, meanwhile you, you, they lose a fortune in opportunity cost because they don't invest while they're waiting for the crash and when it finally arrives they say they were right uh, it's, it's, a, it's a usual for refrain um, I say that not because these guys are necessarily wrong and I don't know who Chris is talking about obviously by the way so I'm not casting aspersions at his podcast listening or, or the people hosting those podcasts just more the idea that you know there are people who just see risk everywhere and I don't think that's a bad thing conceptually when it starts to take over your brain that's all you want to talk about I think that's just really you know we know pessimism sounds smart. Get you great following on Twitter, by the way, or social media. If you, you know the, the the doom and gloom club, the, the anti house price club, by the way, are nuts on Twitter. Um, just just try defending property prices on Twitter, and you'll see the uh, the group come out in force. It's a, it's a little bit scary. Um, and and my concern is not you know not these people are necessarily wrong, even just that they're always negative, no matter what the circumstance. So I guess I say that because you know the people who've been saying rates can't possibly go any lower than they went lower now they're saying well rates will go higher when they go higher then you know it's there's always the next thing that's going to happen is always the, the cause of the collapse um and they've been wrong for years but they'll, they'll keep you know <laughs> fudging their fudging their rationale until they finally catch up you said the same about shorters in the past doc that you know once you get short a particular company you, you know your rationale changes for long enough eventually you, you hope you're finally right um and i think that's you know, there's a group of people who are in that mindset. I think it's I think it's a really destructive mindset. Now, I don't think they're necessarily this the group of people, Chris, to your question, nor are they necessarily wrong about that. But I think if you if you take the circumstance and say, what is it that would cause a meaningful increase in defaults? Is it a, a collapse in the economy? Well, we've already been through the recession. So yeah, there'll be some zombie companies propped up by stimulus and some will go broke. So yes, as always, you should be mindful of the risk for default absolutely is it really more likely now than i don't know two years ago probably not is it more likely now than six months ago maybe yeah because if you didn't default you know you survive on company on, on government stimulus so maybe that's true i suppose um same with leverage loans you know is it is it is it likely maybe i suppose um i do worry a bit about marginal loans as always because it only takes a small dip in the market to exacerbate that stuff i think marginal loans are a terrible thing because they're particularly when the, the, the security is the shares themselves, just an awful thing to do, um, likely to really mess you up at some point. But I just don't, I don't see a lot of rationale, mate, for a meaningful increase in defaults. I just don't see the economic circumstance. Now, there's always a chance for something out of left field like COVID, for example. So it's kind of always possible, which is almost my point. You know, it's always possible these things will fall at some point. And to your point, you know, if you've got too much debt, that's almost the problem in itself. You are playing with fire. But is it likely to increase in the, in the near term? I just, I, I'd love to know the rationale, Chris. Feel free to get back in touch, mate, if you want to. But I just don't see the circumstances, Doc. I don't see the, I, I don't see what would cause any of those particular outcomes now if they haven't already been through it with the economy kind of contracting here and overseas in the in the middle of last year. I don't see what come March, April, May would be causing that, other than maybe the withdrawal of stimulus, which will hit some businesses. But I, I, I can't imagine it's a large scale problem, is it? Yeah, I think I agree with everything that you said. I think, yeah, I have nothing more to add to that. In that case, we're done for this Sunday mailbag. We've got so much more to get through, Doc. We will try our desperate best, I promise, to get through more questions in future. But we hope you've enjoyed this Sunday special, special regular mailbag edition of Motley Fool Money. Don't forget, before we go, you can and should subscribe, please do, to the Motley Fool Money podcast. Do it through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or podcast one. Uh, you don't want to miss an episode. We'll be out next Friday. Occasionally, by the way, occasionally a bonus episode. So just keep an eye out for those. We'll have them from time to time. We did last year. We'll do it again this year. Just when the when the mood strikes or the opportunity strikes with a particular guest or episode we want to put together, we'll do that. So just, you know, you don't want to miss those. 
You don't want to miss those. So make sure you do keep in touch. And if you do like what we're doing, please give us a rate and leave us a review. As I said, it's good for our egos. Uh, it doesn't make earn us any more money, by the way, but it's good for our egos and helps other people find the podcast. And if they do find it, to think it might be worth checking out for their own uh, their own sake. So please do do that if you if you are if you are appropriately interested. I've said before, if you want to join Doc Service, you can do that. If you want to join Share Advisor, which I run. Go to fool.com.au SA podcast. We're not very inventive with our naming here. So if you want to join Share Advisor, it's fool.com.au SA podcast. If you want to join Extreme Opportunities, just substitute the EO for the SA. And that's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. And of course, as the cool kids say, why not both? So please do that. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.